Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, April the 21st, 2023, the end of the week. There's always a kind of end of the week about Keynote in the sense that because I talk to so many authors with big ideas, you get a sense of trends, big ideas that are being transformed. And one of the, the biggest ideas that I think is being transformed is that we're rethinking the idea of the self. It's always been taken for granted that we're autonomous beings and that we define ourselves. And that's been very much bound up with the history or perhaps the mythology of, of America. Um, the kinds of people who came here and the kinds of people who identify with an Amer with Americanness. We did a show a couple of weeks ago with um, uh, a social psychiatrist at Stanford University, Bly uh, Brian Lowry. That's why I have Brian on the brain. Uh, he is a PhD and he has a new book out, Selfless, the Social Construction of You. Uh, the idea of you as getting a critique from all sorts of areas, particularly, I think, politically. We had last month Alissa Quart on the show, an interesting political thinker. She has a new book out called Bootstrap, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. And according to Quart and Larry and so many others, uh, we need to come to terms with the fact that we're not quite as self-centered. We're not quite as self-orientated, as self-constructed as we've been told by the mythologists of the American tradition. Uh, my guest today, Daniel J. Siegel, MD, uh, is also in the business of defining or redefining uh, the idea of the self. Uh, he taught or teaches at UCLA, and he's also... Uh, runs an institute in uh, in Santa Monica in California, Southern California, called the Mindside Institute. And he has a new book out. It's called, appropriately enough, Intraconnected, Me and We, as the Integration of Self, Identity, and Belonging. And he's joining us from Santa Monica. Um, Daniel, am I right? Is the idea of the self, which is one of the key, shall we say, constructions in American cultural, political, economic history, is it under assault from all sorts of different directions? Andrew, I think that's absolutely true. It, it may actually be an old assault that began, as far as we can tell, in indigenous teachings from thousands of years ago. It was paralleled in an independent way by contemplative teachings uh, but in modern times, and America is the uh, quintessential place of individualism, the United States, uh, and in not being united, we also have ourselves not being united from the individual out. Uh, and this individualism, this construction of the word self, meaning the individual, uh, in, in many ways is now being questioned. And the assault you're referring to, Andrew, I think is absolutely happening from from politicians, from anthropologists, from other scientists like myself that works in all these fields of science to say that the way we construct a self as individual may not only be misguided, 
but it may be actually lethal. That if we continue living like that, we're going to lead to a lot of destruction. So yes, I think a lot of quarters, like the authors you're mentioning, uh, and many others, are now questioning what this individualism is doing to the health of us as individuals and also the health of the planet. We have a word, Daniel, the Enlightenment, to describe the founding philosophers of modernity, and two particularly come to mind, uh, John Locke and, uh, and Hume. They both thought of ourselves as being self-created. Is this assault on the self, Daniel? Is it in its own way also an assault on the Enlightenment? Well, you know, it's interesting that word is can be used, of course, to understand the cultural view of what we call the Enlightenment. And yet in contemplative teachings, the same word is used for when you bring light into the reality that the separate self is an illusion. And when you come to realize that deeply, that is called enlightenment. So it's a very interesting conflict of words. Um, you know, if we just pause for a moment, Andrew, and said, what do people mean by the word self? Like if I say to you, you know, if someone says, yes, uh, I, I was thinking about that myself and my I was trying to self-regulate or develop my self-awareness or learn to really have self-development. You know, um, what does that word mean for, for you when, when we use the word self linguistically like that? Daniel, going back to, to Locke, uh, people think of Lockean liberalism as being foundations of the American Revolution, of American democracy, of American capitalism. It's premised on the idea of us as tabula rasas, that we're born as these empty slates and experience um, inhabits that space. The, the, the longer we live, the more we experience, the more the self is defined. Is the assault on the self also an assault on the idea of a tabula rasa, that we're born as empty slates? You know, I don't think it has to be an assault on that. I think... Um... In some ways, uh, if we start with uh, a, an empty slate and say, okay, you just become whatever you're constructed to be and you live in a culture that tells you you're separate, you know, then you say, yeah, okay, I'm separate. But if you live in a culture that says you're a part of a community, then you grow that way. What we're saying is that the message that you're separate uh, is actually an error. Now, you, it doesn't have to attack the tabla rasa point of view because it could be that uh, you were just in the wrong kind of messaging culture. However, if you look at the structure of the nervous system, which I try to do in, in this interconnected book, um, you can see that, in fact, we have very social brains, that the very stuff of our nervous system is meant to be connected uh, not only to people we know, but to actually to all of humanity. So if you look at studies of altruism and the experience of compassion and awe, those promote well-being where the opposite of them, this constricted view of the self actually promotes unhealth. And then our connection, even with nature, when people are deprived of being connected to a larger natural world, they suffer. So those findings from research do support what you're saying, that we are not a tabla rasa. We, we actually come with genetic information saying what we are on this planet and what we are is a profoundly 
social being. And as a species, we have choice to actually either construct on top of that the lesson you're separate, or we can construct the reality that we're deeply connected with one another and with nature. If you're right, or if the researchers are right, Daniel, that we do indeed have what you call social brains, that we are naturally empathetic, that we like talking to others, that we're not quite as competitive or as bootstrapped as, as the, um, the ideologists of the American experiment suggest, then how do you explain the last two or 300 years? How do you explain our seemingly innate competitiveness um, has something gone wrong? Have we been unwired or rewired or just uh, un un uh, have we been unplugged essentially from our natural being, our natural state? Yeah, it's a great question, Andrew. Thank you. I, I think there are at least three ways you can approach your question. One is the very simple thing that uh, is basically a system in a culture can reinforce its own way of being. So if someone starts to teach individualism and people take that on and see that, okay, I need to accumulate material well-being to really have my individual self be successful, but then you don't quite feel successful enough. So you keep on doing that to get more stuff. Then you realize you can produce stuff to have other people buy your stuff. And if we're all individualistically running on what's called this hedonic treadmill, that's one explanation for these last hundred years, few hundred years of this perpetuating itself. A second reason is that the human brain has this propensity to try to have the creation of an illusion, at least, of certainty. And the individualistic view of the self gives you this, what you could call, as the artist Rashid calls it in the Brooklyn Public Library entryway, she says, having abandoned the flimsy fantasy of certainty, I decided to wander. This flimsy fantasy is driven by a brain that wants certainty to be safe. So if you can predict, you can protect. And that idea then makes the individual something more you can control. You can be more certain if yourself what we can define as a center of experience is only in your skin and case body, then you have this illusion that, oh, great, now I've achieved certainty in life. So that's a second reason why individualism is compelling because it meets our brain's anticipatory need to try to give some illusion of certainty and individual, individualism does it a lot more than being a part of a larger community. So in a sense, it's, it's a religion, individualism, and perhaps it's no coincidence given that we've had this age of individualism in a post-religious age. Let's get to your book, yeah. Brian, because you're certainly not the first or the last person to chip away at the self, and maybe you're not quite as destructive as, as others. Tell me about interconnected. What are you saying that's original, that hasn't been said before? This is a hard subject because everything one way or the other has probably been said before. Yeah, absolutely. And in the beginning of Interconnected, I honor that indigenous teachings from many, many different cultures across the planet, you know, have been teaching this for thousands of years. Contemplative teachings from many different traditions have been teaching it. I think the unique contribution of Interconnected as a, a, a exploration Number one, it invites the reader to actually go on a journey, not only through contemplative indigenous teachings, but to look at the science behind what we now understand is how the brain 
constructs the self across development. So that doesn't exist anywhere. So that's one unique thing. A second unique thing is the feedback from people who've read the book, like my audio engineer, when I read the, the audio of the book, the, the auto, audio version, you know, he himself started feeling himself transforming. And when people write me emails about the book, I wrote the book since I'm a therapist to actually be a journey of transformation for the reader themselves. So that offers you the opposite of, of a destructive experience. It actually is a reconstructive one. It allows you to look at how did your experience of self get created? How can you see what a, a, a lens, an identity lens is? And that's a unique contribution of the book too. You have an identity lens that can be close in for a me and then broader for the people you know and connections to a larger community and then even larger to all of humanity and then even wider still to all of nature. And it takes you on a, a, a basically a set of lessons that teach you how to adjust this identity lens. It's like yeah. going to Santa Monica. It's going like going to Santa Monica. You exactly. go to the mines. You could go to the Mindsight Institute, and you don't even have to go there. You just pick up the book. Are exactly. you uh, cannibalizing your business? I am cannibalizing it, but I think it's for a good purpose because I think if we can go on this transformative journey, it's not destructive. It's actually what the Earth needs us to do. It's a win-win situation because you as an individual will realize who you are is larger than your individual self. And instead of the incredible amount of mental suffering that that view creates, as you can see in just the statistics of the United States mental health being so poor. Yeah, that's another. I mean, this whole area is all connected. It's interesting that yeah. you mentioned indigenous, um, uh, the indigenous traditions, which are reappearing in new forms and guises we've done so many shows on this we did a show actually earlier this week with a novelist who wrote a novel um on uh on the indigenous communities of new guinea we've done many on our sense of responsibility and forgiveness for the cultures we destroyed and many others on what we can learn from indigenous communities on our ties to the soil and to history and time is this what you're arguing in Interconnected is that we should return perhaps as scientists to those indigenous traditions and recognize that they were probably more right than wrong and we have much to learn from them and that the colonial mentality of science uh, destroyed that stuff and then made us realize what we're missing? I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it I could have written interconnected. Brian. You could. I, maybe I you almost did. called you Brian. Uh, Daniel. <laughs> Daniel, yes. I'm happy to be Brian and Daniel. You know, the um, I think it's so beautiful what you're saying, Andrew, because the irony is, and this is what another unique contribution I think of the book is, is it takes you on a deep scientific exploration of how self gets constructed. And instead of reducing the individual down to just oh the self is just in your body it actually takes that scientific view and it actually reconstructs from the view of self as your sensation perspective and agency and says look you have the ability to actually widen how you experience this self and it's going to be a benefit to you as an individual it's going to be a benefit to your relationships with other people and even a benefit to how we're facing the pandemic of the climate crisis so you know, and yes, I do believe it's honoring indigenous teachings, it's honoring contemplative teachings. And if it's doing anything, it's saying science is now ready to look deeply at its own structure and contribute to that 
you know, long time ancient, uh, basically invitation to expand how we see what the self is. Daniel, we, we live in, don't, you, need, you don't need me to tell you this, we live in an age where we're obsessed with racial and gendered and sexual forms of identity. There's a, a very interesting debate going on about uh, gender, for example, whether we're born as men or women, the trans debate. Race is obviously a huge issue. Eugenics seems to have reappeared one way or the other. Um, what does your theory and interconnected suggest about people who argue that uh, black people are different from white people or men are different from women? Um, is there anything to it or can we explain that stuff away? Because I, I personally am not a huge fan of the idea that we're born uh, with racial or gendered or sexual selves. I think it can lead to all sorts of very disturbing theories. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think there's a, um, an interconnected, there's a whole deep discussion which I offer about those aspects of what we call identity. And there's a, a fundamental process called integration, which allows differentiated ways of being, but then honors the differences. So, for example, in terms of race, you know, race, uh, as a biologist, I can tell you, is not an actual thing. There are population variations and there is something called racism. And what racism is, is a human belief that one population variation that we name as race is better than another race. But actually, we're one species and our ability to you know, reproduce together is across the entire species and population variations exist. But race by itself is not a real thing. Racism is absolutely real. The, the issue with gender, you know, I talk about this in the book as well. When you look at the biological mechanisms that we understand now about gender identity and about sexual orientation, you begin to understand how people can, can differ you know, based on biological factors, that then when there's a culture that says you must be this uniform way, you must be like me or, or you know, regions which say we can't teach about, you know, the way um, different cultures are different or different identities have different experiences from the inside. Um, this is really, uh, you know, not a biological um, truth. It's actually flying in the face of the fact that we really do have um, helpful, healthy biological differences. So in terms of your question about male and female, you know, the generalizations about the male brain and the female brain are often exaggerations of very, very small differences, but that get magnified within culture. So for example, I have a daughter, when she was uh, in advanced mathematics in high school, her classmates said, you can't be in advanced math. And she said, why not? They said, because you're a girl. And now in our family, that you know, wasn't what we taught. So she said to them, I don't think you're right. And though she was on the volleyball team also. I hope she also, smacked them, didn't she? I mean, <laughs> on the volleyball team, she smacked that ball down on them for sure. When the, well, you practice. don't do violence in Santa Monica, do you? Uh, <laughs> we try to you? avoid it except on the athletic field. Um, so I say that because, you know, I mean, you could say, oh, you know, there's a gender difference. But the fact is, you know, if you took a brain of a female and a brain of a male, put them in a scanner and showed it to an expert in brains, they could not 
by function or structure tell you if it's a male brain or a female brain. Uh, you know, of course, the, the other studies that show, you know, if you're told a message like females can't do math, then one study showed, for example, if before a math test, you ask the person taking the test, what's your gender? And they write female versus if you ask them after the test, what's your gender? If you're asked before the test and the culture is giving you a message, females can't do math, you'll do worse on the test. That's a cultural message. And so you hold that in, you're like, oh my gosh, how can I do it? Mm. Um, and that primes you. So that kind of study just, and others, many, many others, show it's important to realize we're all- uh, Daniel, why then is the trans issue so, uh, so combustible? Why is everybody so sensitive and why- does there seem to be a fashion, I'm guessing, particularly in places like Santa Monica, of young boys deciding they want to be girls and young girls deciding they want to be boys? You know, it's a it's a really important thing, I think, to start with the biology of that. And I know since I'm a therapist and I've had patients who've had that experience from very early on, whereas young, let's say a young boy uh, on the outside was born, named a boy has the genitals of a boy, but absolutely senses that that he, that this individual is actually a female identity, and then goes through the period of, you know, early childhood and then adolescence, and that stays with them. It's not a trend. They're not trying to be different. It's how they feel. When you look at basically two things, when you look at the biological anatomy issue where your genitals, male or female, are determined by your chromosomes. XX leads to female chromosomes. The XY combination leads to male chromosomes. That is very distinct from how the brain itself gets what's called masculinized. So every fetus every in the womb, every fetus begins as a female fetus, and its exposure to male hormones leads to what's called the masculinization of the brain. Now you can have, uh, as in this boy's case, you can have a blockage of the way any male hormones that were in, in the bloodstream masculinize that brain. So it doesn't get masculinized, it remains female, even though there are male genitalia. And the opposite can be the true, true as well. You can have the exposure to male hormones that make the brain to various degrees become masculinized, even though the genitals are a female. So. Now the baby's born, the brain has already been set in its basic identity, but the genitals of the body are and the chromosomes are different from how the brain um, grew in utero. And that's our understanding of how gender identity is a real biological issue. And for those who are, you know, it's, it's unusual in the population, but they're absolutely a part of our community. They're part of who we are as a people. Um, to honor that is to really honor a biological reality. And to, de to deny that is actually to deny a reality, which you know, doesn't make anyone uh, benefit when you deny reality. Earlier this week, Daniel did a show, an excellent show actually, with Jonathan Rosen. He has the cover story of The Atlantic um, this month or next month, a story called American Madness, built around a new book by him, The Best Minds, a story of friendship, madness, and the tragedy of good intentions. This is about a friend of his who 
very close friend of his who went crazy, killed his girlfriend. But he was a brilliant mind, a scholar at Yale, part of Yale Law School. And we talked extensively about what we call our age of anxiety. How does your understanding of the self or our misunderstanding of the self and interconnected, how is it connected with the increasing centrality of mental illness in America in the 2020s? Or am I, is that a, a wrong connection in interconnected? No, I, th I think it is a right connection you're pointing out, Andrew. I think, you know, one, one way to think about it is, you know, we are meant to be uh, having the experience of connection, of belonging. Uh, the word intraconnected uh, of the book title is to realize there is a connectivity within the whole so there's an individual, like, for example, an individual tree, but the tree is a part of a larger forest. Now, in uh, the United States, the reason I believe that we have such feeling of disconnection and distress uh, and, and depression and despair, anxiety, suicide are higher than we've ever seen it now, is because people don't have the experience of belonging. They have a sense of self that the society tells them is separate. And I think there's a direct relationship between being told basically a lie that who you are is just your skin encased body. Now, you may be listening to us and say, well, isn't that what the self means? The self is the individual. And this is when I was writing Interconnected. I thought this is a tough sell because people are going to think the word self means the individual. So what's the problem with the mental health of the self in an individualistic society? Because isn't it about the individual? So what I want to say is, Self is a center of experience. That center should not be limited to your skin and case body. It's your relationships with people close to you. It's relationship with your whole overall family, with your friends. It's relationships with your community. It's relationships with humanity. And it's relationships with nature. So that's the intra-connected. We have an inner, yes, that's important. And we have an inter, our connectivity. And there's a wholeness, that's the intra. So why is mental health challenged when people are told they're separate? Well, sadly, from what you're describing about uh, uh, Jonathan Rosen's book and his friend, you know, you can have someone who's intellectually very capable if they are taking in the message of separation and if there isn't the experience of belonging and there isn't someone with whom they can speak, even if they have um, a condition, you know, which we see in 1% of the population, like schizophrenia, in cultures where people continue to belong, even when they have a, 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 a challenging situation like schizophrenia, they become a part of the community. But yeah, it would be interesting. I, I think Jonathan would strongly disagree. He's schizophrenia and certainly the experience of his friend, Michael, as something that couldn't have changed medically or scientifically, but that's another issue. So is there... Is there a manifesto, um, Daniel, in this book, Interconnected? We're clearly struggling. We live in an age of anxiety. Uh, most of us aren't particularly empathetic, even if the empathy word now gets a good hearing. What needs to happen? Is it an intellectual revolution, a political one, an economic one, a well, psychological I one that you're calling for? Yeah, I think it's on all those levels, actually. You know, there are different groups. I And work an environmental with. one, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So I work uh, at a place in New York where we're working to look at how we can help businesses 
embrace a more intra-connected view of life. I'm working with a group that works in the United Nations, where we're looking at this larger systems view of all the. Isn't countries. that the kind of thing you'll have hundreds of meetings of the United Nations talking about this, and nothing will ever change? People well, will be this is bloviating you know, one way or the other about it. You know, this is why I wrote the book because an individual reads a book. And I agree with the statement that someone can have schizophrenia and they might, uh, for example, uh, maintain it. But the studies of cultures where someone has schizophrenia, but is still embraced by the community, it's not that it gets rid of the schizophrenia. It's that the people are now incorporated into the larger system. The same thing, I think, is true with how we have such a diversity of people in our world. If we have a community that allows belonging to be basically the breath of the life of that community, then there are different ways people would be, even with certain disorders, where they still belong. And I think that's the message, the manifesto, if you will. The individual can belong, relationships will be enhanced, and the way we connect with each other and with all of nature will be improved. And so on all those levels you're pointing out, it's, a, it's an invitation, perhaps a manifesto, to think deeply about what the self is, and realize that we have time and we have the power and now we have the skills to adjust this identity lens and allow the self to be much more than the individual and to realize our full connected nature in life. You teach at UCLA and uh, for people watching, um, the photo of you on the UCLA uh, website features you and a dog. I'm not sure if it's your dog, but a very yeah. nice looking yeah, dog. Of course that's mine, yeah. Uh, another big theme that I'm seeing which perhaps is, is how we can end, uh, is the challenge and opportunity to rethink our relations, we humans, our relations with other species, dogs, cats, birds, uh, particularly um, the casualties of our destruction of the environment. Is this another piece of interconnected to recognize that just as we as individuals aren't unique or separate, so we as a species aren't either? Absolutely. I think the book begins uh, with a trip to uh, the Pando Populous Forest in Utah, which is basically 48,000 seemingly independent quaking aspen trees. But when you go just beneath the surface of the soil, you find it's one root ball. In the same way, what appears to be separate, we're separate species, separate individuals as human beings even, you know, we, we come from a common source. And the interconnected sense is that there is a whole of the system that we can work towards. It's a greater good. And every bit of science supports the notion that the awe that comes from that experience, the gratitude that comes from that, the compassion, all are health promoting. And this is the journey. I think we can shake ourselves out of the mistaken identity of separation and realize the truth of connection.